Amen. It's good to be with you this morning, church family. Especially good to be with Kate and Jesus to have you guys with us. Thankful you're here. And uh, if uh, you have not met Kate and Jesus, it was wonderful to hear a little update from them again. Uh, they've got a table out in the lobby after service is over. They'd love to meet you. And also, I'll just say this on their behalf. I know they need more support. Funding financially is what I'm talking about. And so if the Lord moves on your heart to give to them today, please do that. If the Lord moves on your heart to partner with them in perpetual support, please do that. I know not only would it be a blessing to them, but it would also um, help them reach more lives. You saw in the stories uh, in the video of the ways that God is using them. When you support them, you're helping make that happen. And you're showing uh, storing treasure up in heaven, not in a literal money sense, but um, investing into the eternal kingdom of God is well worth it. So again, we're so glad you guys are here uh, today. Uh, one other quick thing before we get into the word. Um, that is, I want to remind you guys about the workshop that's coming up next Sunday. Uh, my dear friend, a mentor friend of mine, uh, Jim Kirkland, uh, who has an organization in Georgia that, that trains, equips, um, and supports chaplains, Christian chaplains all over uh, America, that he's doing a workshop again next Sunday after second service. And I would encourage you, it's going to be very much along the lines of this series that we're starting today, being Life on Mission, helping challenge and equip and encourage us with how we can be more on mission in our lives, in our communities, in our places of work. Um, and so if you're wondering, man, is that something that's really for me? Because he's got a like chaplain organization, and I don't know if I really want to be a chaplain. The answer is, if you're a believer, it's for you. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be challenged and equipped. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet registered, to participate in that. One more added bonus to that is that we've invited and asked Vivek and Darla with their food truck, Namaste and Eat, that Indian food truck that has got so much flavor, it'll slap your taste buds and you'll be singing praises for an hour. They, um, they're going to be providing lunch. Um, and so the church is going to be um, helping offset some of the cost of that truck. Uh, and so if you want, you can come and participate in the food there. Uh, or if you're like, uh, Indian food's not my thing, then I'd say venture out and get a little bit brave, but also you could pack a sandwich if you want. All right. Or maybe just fast. That'll be good for you too. Okay. Having said that, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we are going to be today. And we are going to read the whole chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And I think a lot of times um, when we think about Christian missions, we think about people like Kate and Jesus who live in Mexico, who live in a cross-cultural situation where they're taking the gospel to somewhere other than here where we are. And that is good, and we thank God for that. That's why we prayerfully and financially support them and many other partners. And man, I, my hope and prayer as a pastor is that God would continue to raise up people in our church who feel compelled and called by God to go into the mission field cross-culturally, taking the gospel, especially to people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. And although we are grateful for that, sometimes we in our minds think missions are those people who go and do those things like that. And we give ourselves an excuse to not live missionally where we are. And what we're going to read today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to challenge that and encourage us um, in, in a good way. So let's go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul talking to the Corinthians said this, 
For we know that, oh, oh, and let me give a disclaimer. I forgot because some of you are like waiting for it to pop up on the screens. Here's the deal with the power outage this morning, slides didn't get done. So <laughs> read your Bible, open it up. And it uh, might be good for you. Anyways, if you don't have a Bible to follow along, we've got a bunch of them on the shelves back in the corners over there. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, it would be our joy to give you one. So please grab one, take it, take it home. There's nothing we would love more than to know that you own a Bible and that you can read it for yourself. So having said that, don't be looking for slides on the screen today. That's all you're getting. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Some of you are going, wait, we're talking about camping? What's going on here? A tent? Paul, when he refers to this tent, he's talking about our physical bodies. And he's using this imagery, this verbiage on purpose to try and help us understand some greater truths. When he says this tent that we have and he's talking about our body, he's trying to help us see the same way that maybe you are someone who has camped. Anybody camped in a tent before? Yep, yep. It's fun and it also stinks. <laughs> it's great and it's also horrible. I remember when I was in, uh, not Virginia, in Arkansas, and I was in my first year of college, myself, my best friend, and a family that was friends of ours were going camping. They were going camping on the Black, Black River in Missouri, and they invited us to come with, and we drove, I want to say like six hours, got to the campsite at dark, and we get there and start setting up the tent, and man, a torrential downpour came, what we in the South would have called a gully washer. It was bad, but we got our, I got my tent built and it stormed. And I'm talking about, if, let me say, Wisconsinites, you don't know about Southern thunderstorms. I miss them, love them, and they're also terrifying. And so, especially when you're in a tent, I'm in this tent and all night a thunderstorm is going. I'm talking about downpour, kabooming, thunder, and I don't know, maybe two hours into it is when I'm like asleep and then the drip, drip drip, drip. It was a terrible night. Thankfully, the rest of the week was awesome. All of that to say, although that is fun, I'm thankful that that was a temporary thing. Camping in a tent can be fun, but it's not home, right? There's a reason you rent or buy a home and don't live in a tent, because that's not ideal. It's temporary. Paul uses the imagery here of a tent as our bodies to try to communicate to us that our lives here on this earth are temporary. Same way the tent is set up, it's not our forever home. Our forever home, he says, is with God and in heaven. So continuing on in verse two, for this tent, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, talking about our new bodies. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The, all that right there is Paul essentially saying, our, 
our, our tent, our body is groaning, longing for the day wherein we will have our home and not live in a tent subject to storms and critters and whatever other things might come in challenging our tent living. That we live in our bodies right now longing for the day that we will have new bodies, not that we would be less clothed and become just ethereal spirits, but that when we are in eternity with Christ, we will receive brand new bodies, wonderfully bodies that, that have no more sickness. Doesn't that sound wonderful? No more pain. Doesn't that sound wonderful? No more injury, no more disease, no more handicaps, no more physical limitations and ailments, man, what a day that will be. And that's why we long to be further clothed when we will have new bodies in eternity with Christ. He said, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee, saying that even though we are not yet in that day where we will behold the glory of Jesus Christ face to face, God has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us as the guarantee, as the deed, as the promise, as the seal towards that day. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. That's Paul saying right now, as we live in this body, we're, we're separate from the Lord. There's another place where he would say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is where Paul told the Philippians, man, I would, I'm torn between living and dying. I'd rather leave here because that means being with Christ. And so the person who has found Christ and has been filled with the Spirit of God, been made new, that person's inner, most deepest longing, most deepest, we're using grand, good grammar this morning, our deepest longing is to be with Christ. Our hunger internally is to be with Him. And when we know Him and the joy that He brings us, the meaning He brings us, the purpose He brings us, the satisfaction He brings us, all other things are less than. And so he said, we walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because these are truths and realities that we can't see with our eyes. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. This is just like what he said to the Philippians. Man, I'm hard pressed between these two things. I'd rather get out of here and be with Jesus. But Paul said to the Philippians, but for your sake, I'll stay. He's saying it again now to another church saying, man, I would rather be away from the body because that means I get to be with Jesus. See, why do we follow Jesus? Why do we go to church? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we worship? Why do we pray? There are so many forms of Christianity today, especially in America, where Christianity's purpose is that you would follow Jesus so he can fix your problems and be the cherry on top of your life. Scripture makes it clear here from the writings of Paul and other places, the reason we follow Jesus is because we get Jesus. He's the treasure. He's the prize. He's the reward. And therefore, we live in this tent longing for the day where we finally have our permanent home. And the good news is that permanent home is a neighborhood wherein we are face to face with the glory of Christ. And let me tell you, I want you to stop and imagine for a second. What is, in your life up to this point, the most joyful thing you've ever experienced? What's the moment where you had the most joy, the most elation? Perhaps for many of you, maybe it was your wedding day. 
The day that you're looking across the aisle to your bride or to your groom and you're so excited about the covenant you're making with them to be with them for the rest of your life till death do you part. You're excited to make that covenant because you're so enamored with them and you've got so much joy on that day. Maybe for you, the day in your life which had the most joy was the day that you received that newborn baby and you got to hold that child that God just gave you and you look at them and it's like hard to get your mind around this beautiful, precious gift that God gave you. Maybe you're younger than those two scenarios, and for you, maybe the day that gave you the most joy was the day that you got to go to Six Flags or, or go to a concert and then see your favorite band or whatever it might be. Friends, whatever in this life has given you the most joy is a molehill next to the mountain of the glory of Jesus Christ that we will experience. That's why... We walk by faith and not by sight because to, to, to get our minds and our hearts in a place where we can believe what I just said takes faith. To where we can have experienced great joys in this life, like marriage, like childbearing, like, like different accomplishments or achievements or other different things that give us joy, like getting that trophy buck or whatever it might be, all the different things in our life that give us joy. To believe that they are the, the foothills, the molehills next to the mountain of joy that we will experience when we behold the glorified Jesus Christ face to face. That takes faith to believe it. Yet scripture gives us faith to believe it. Where were we? Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Would you read that line with me one more time? We make it our aim to please him. Would you say that with me right now? We make it our aim to please him. Repeat this after me. Say, my aim is to please him. Our aim is to please him. And he's going to tell us why. Verse 10, he says this. For we must all. Did he say some? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul, when he says we, whether we're in the body or with Christ, we make it our aim to please him. And he says for, meaning the reason we aim to please him is why? Because we all, every single one of us, will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account to the God who sees everything we've ever done, not only sees everything we've ever done, sees the motive of our hearts in everything we've ever done. That's why we aim to please him because he sees it all and knows it all. And we will stand before him. That's what motivates the desire to please him knowing that we'll all appear before that judgment seat. And notice this as he goes on in verse 11. Here's a, a word you should always pay attention to. He said, therefore. Anytime you, I've heard Bible teachers say, anytime you see a therefore, you should see what it's there for. <laughs> How clever. 
Therefore, meaning we've just talked about the fact that we will all stand and give an account to God for our lives. And And I want to pause for a second because that verse could sound like if you're good, you'll be welcomed into heaven. And if you're bad, you won't be. And although there are some shades of truth to that, we, we see from Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. So if we are welcomed into heaven and if we stand before God on judgment day and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, it will not be because we did a bunch of good things, but because we believed in Jesus's one good thing or all of his good things, but especially his death on the cross where he paid for our debt of sin. You don't get welcomed into the family of God. You don't get reconciled to God. You don't get into heaven. You don't get your eternal home with Christ because you do good things, because you cannot do enough good things to earn it. We trust solely in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that his work was good enough. And so I want to make that clear when he says uh, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. With judgment in view, with judgment in the frame of view, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, because we're going to stand before judgment, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul's saying, I would hope that you guys would know that we're genuine children of God. That's essentially what he's saying, that you would know that we're of the faith, not because like other people, we've got our ducks in a row on the outside, not because we've got all the outward things that make us look like Christians, but but because of what's in the heart. And you've got the right heart with the Lord, so you know that we do too. There's that bearing witness there is what he's saying. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verse 14, I love, for the love of Christ controls us. Man, if there is a verse in this chapter that's highlight worthy, underlight worthy, circle worthy, star worthy, note arrows, whatever you want to put there, man, for the love of Christ controls us. You know, when you're a Christian and you're trying to, you're aiming to please him, that requires you to say no to things that other people would say yes to. It also calls you to say yes to things that other people would say no to. The Christian life is one wherein we are called to obey God. We are called to serve him and follow him and to give sacrificially and to prefer others and do a bunch of things that the natural flesh doesn't want to do. This Christian life is one where we need God's help and we do it for his glory But Paul says right here, wherein if you try and live your life in a way that pleases God, or if you tell people, hey, I can't do that because I don't think God would want me to, or I'm going to do this because I believe God would want me to, there are some who would say, oh, man, you're you're just being legalistic. You're just following a bunch of rules. Don't be careful to be, not, not to be legalistic. You know, if I said, you know, Katie and I, we try as much as we can we try to once a week make sure that we have some us time without the girls. And we've uh, got some family who takes the girls once a week and we're very blessed to, most of the time, most weeks we're able to have like a date night. 
And I'm very, very grateful for that. Now you could hear that, that we prioritize trying to have a date night once a week. It doesn't always happen, but we try to make it happen. You could hear that and you could go, man, you guys are really legalistic in your marriage. Like, what kind of marriage has to have rules to make sure that you have a date night once a week? That's legalistic, isn't it? Or maybe our love for each other compels us to want to go on dates. Now, I would say if you don't want to go on the date and you're doing those things without your heart in it, then it is legalistic. The difference is the motive of the heart. And you could sit here and you could go, well, I, I guess I better... I, bet, I guess I better buy flowers on Valentine's Day and I guess I better write some notes or I guess I better, you know, scratch her back when she isn't feeling good or whatever I can do to help or love or serve because, you know, that's what a good husband does. And that's about me and that's not about her. And I've been there. I'm not perfect. Confessions from a pastor, not perfect. But there's a difference when it's because I love her and I want to do it. And Paul is here saying the love of Christ controls us. Other translations would say compels us or constrains us. And so when others would look at you and your desire and your attempts to please God, why? Because you love him. And others would say, oh, you're being legalistic. You shouldn't have to follow rules. Why, why should you not do that or, or make sure that you do this? There's other different things that we do, like, like I'll never be alone with another female. I don't do it. I won't do it. And you could go, oh, that's legalistic. And I'm going, oh, I love my wife, and I want to make sure that there's no stumbling blocks. I want to make sure there's no room for people to accuse us of anything. I want to make sure that we're living above reproach. Well, that's really legalistic, giving yourself all these crazy rules. Like, how can you even live that way? Well, the love for my wife, my love for Christ compels me to. That's what Paul's trying to give us a, a view of. That you can view Christianity one of two ways. There are commands, there are rules, there are expectations, and we are expected as children of God to follow them. The question is, are you a child of God who loves God, who has therefore the motive in your heart by the Holy Spirit changing your heart to want to please him, to where the love of Christ controls you rather than the burdens of law telling you you better? That wasn't in my notes, so I guess it was free. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Here we go. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Man, I've got a lot of ink on my page. Listen, if you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, you are no longer your own. You have adjoined yourself to a Lord. You have given yourself not only to a Lord, but the Lord of all creation, wherein you have recognized that you had a debt you could not pay, and the eternally generous Jesus Christ came in and paid your debt, and you owe him everything. Yet, let me just put this out there. Let's say you got a call this morning, and someone called you and said, hey, congratulations, I just wrote a check to pay off all your debts. 
how would you respond if you had debts? Maybe you're debt-free. But let's say that you had debts, not only debts, but massive debts that you've come to terms with the fact that you could never pay. And someone calls you and says, hey, good news. I felt generous. I felt loving. And I felt compelled by my love to pay your debt. You're debt-free. How would you respond? Well, that's very kind. Thank you. No. Are, you're, ki- you're kidding. You're not serious. You could, no, that's, that's too much. You know, you, you don't, wait, we put on our pseudo, our pseudo human, oh, you don't have to do that for me. No, you, but you did? You paid my debt? Oh my goodness. I, I feel a freedom. I'm no longer slave to the lender. I can, I can start using my money for the other things I would want to use it for. I can start building. I can start doing this and that. I, I, don't, I don't owe anymore. You'd be elated. You'd be overjoyed. Yet someone offering to pay your monetary debts is once more a molehill compared to the good news of Jesus Christ paying your sin debt that separated you from God and created estrangement between you and the holy, righteous, good, and loving God. Yet, for some reason, if, if someone came up to you and said, I'm paying off all your debts, or let's say another kind of, of good news. Let's say you've been trying and trying and trying to have a child, and finally you, you conceived, and, and you're going to have a child, and you go, hey, we're... We're pregnant. Let's tell no one. No. What do you do? You, you, you buy little booties and you get a little chalkboard and you figure out some way off of Pinterest that you should frame a picture and you post it online with a little sonogram and, and you start counting down the days. Guys are getting close. You start doing everything you can. Why, you want to let everyone know because you're so excited about that good news. Yet, That's this compared to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherein we have had our sin debt forgiven and paid. Not only does the love of Christ compel us to share that message, but we must recognize that we're not our own anymore. It makes me think of Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 where Paul told the Galatians, he said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like verse 15? And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That we would not live for ourselves anymore. Listen, We have had the sermon preached by America and pop culture and by Disney that chase your dreams. Do anything that you want to do. You can do it. Oh, boy. I've got girls. I've had practice. Chase your dreams. Pursue whatever is in your heart. Go after those dreams. Where Jesus says, actually, die to yourself. Your ambitions, your aspirations, your goals, your hopes, and place your hopes in Jesus Christ and let your ambitions, your aspirations, your goals, your mission be formed by what he calls us into. 
Friends, you could spend your whole life building a kingdom to your name, seeking out pleasure and treasure, seeking out comforts, seeking out experiences, memories. Those are not bad. They're not bad. They're neutral. And they can give glory to God when they're, um, when they're done in a way that pleases him. But I just want to push back against the preaching of our society that says you will be most fulfilled, most satisfied, and happiest when you chase your dreams and get your American dream and that you, you do everything you can to get everything you ever wanted when Jesus says, actually, I'm calling you to die. Die to yourself. That those who might no longer, or that, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does that mean? That's Paul saying we don't look at the flesh, we don't look at American or Egyptian or Russian or Chinese or male or female as it pertains to relationship with God. It is, does someone know God or not? This is why, again, to the Galatians, Paul said, there is therefore now neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. You're either in Christ or you're not. And so we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, that's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Another one worth highlighting and underlining and circling, saying, if you are in Christ. Well, how do I get in Christ? What does that even mean to be in Christ? If you have recognized your need for a Savior because you're a sinner, and you have confessed your sin and repented, turning away from a lifestyle of sin, and you have placed your trust and your hope for salvation in Jesus Christ alone and what he did on the cross, then you are in Christ. It is a positional term, meaning your position is righteous before God, meaning not condemned, not damned, but you're right before God because you are in Christ, so that when God the judge looks at you, he doesn't see all the millions of things you've done wrong. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is good news. Amen? If you're in Christ, Paul says that you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. What does that mean? That means the Holy Spirit has come in, as he said earlier, as a seal, wherein that Holy Spirit begins working in your heart to make you look more and more and more and more like Christ, wherein before you loved sin and hated righteousness, the Holy Spirit begins changing your heart, removing the desire for sin and giving you the desire for holiness and righteousness. Wherein beforehand, the life of holiness and the life that pleases God looked horrible to you. You're going, these people don't know how to have fun. I'd rather live this way. Now, with the Holy Spirit in you, changing your heart, making you a new creation in Christ Jesus, starts making you love the things of God. Starts making you love the people of God. Where you used to look at Christians, and you're like, snob, self-righteous, whatever. Meh. Now you see believers in Christ, and you're like, my people! This is where I fit. 
This is my family. And I love them, and I can't even explain why. You bunch of weirdos, I love you. We're all weirdos, right? Yeah, I guess go ahead and clap for what the Lord has done in uniting us all together. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Have you ever been estranged from a family member? Maybe it was a sibling, a parent, a child, that for whatever offense by you or the other, the relationship was broken and estranged. It's a horrible thing. It's a painful thing. And especially if you're the one who knows you did the wrong. Especially if it came to a day where you realized, I messed this up and I wish, I wish I could be reconciled. This is the beauty of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. We are the ones who botched this thing. We, you, me, all of us are the sinners who estranged ourselves from God by our sin. But God, because of his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his holiness, to the praise of his glorious grace, says, I'm not going to let them remain solely rebellious against me. I'm going to make way for them to be reconciled. And they don't have a means to reconcile themselves to me because they're sinners. They're imperfect. And I'm going to make way for them to be reconciled to me. And so he did that with Jesus Christ on the cross. And in reconciling us to himself, Paul says then, we have been given what? The ministry of reconciliation. If you're sitting there thinking, man, pastor, you're called to the ministry. I'm thankful that you get to preach the Bible to us and tell people about Jesus. Have you been reconciled to God? If you have been reconciled to God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of sin, if you've been reconciled to God, you have also been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul's saying right here. See, we like to go, well, that's for the professionals. That's for the clergies, the pastors. If I took you to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, you would see Paul telling the church in Ephesus this. He says, and God gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. See, my job is not to be the one who just tells people about Jesus. My job is to equip you to do the same thing. To show you the word of God where Paul says, you, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Let's continue on in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. What's that appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's telling us, hey, 
If you've been reconciled to God, if you've had your sin forgiven, that you've confessed your sin and you've repented and turned away from the lifestyle of sin, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, believing in who he is, that he's the son of God and that he came to pay for your sin. If you've done that, then comes the package deal of being on the team, just like if someone paid off your debt, or just like if you got pregnant, or just like if you, if you graduated college, or got accepted to college, or got that new job you've been dreaming of. Whatever good news might come in your life that you're going, ah, I've got to tell people about it. We've got the best news, the greatest news that has ever been given that we can be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, and shame on us if we we don't say, hey, you can be reconciled too. God brought me back a sinner. I was wicked. I loved sin. I loved darkness like Jesus said in John chapter 3. The true light came into the world and men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. That was me. I loved darkness because my deeds were evil. My heart loved sin. Just like Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the, sp- of the air, the spirit that's now in work and in all the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I was that. I was dead in sin. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve any of it. But God reconciled me back to himself through Jesus, and he wants to do it with you too. You don't have to go to seminary for that. You don't have to have the right training to be able to tell someone else, God reconciled me back to himself and he can do it for you too. Oh, but Stephen, oh, but so-and-so, you don't know the bad things I've done. Yeah, I was bad too. I'm a sinner too. That's what I'm trying to say. I have been reconciled and so can you. You have that message. You don't have to have seminary to be able to tell someone God brought me back to himself and he can bring you too. Why? Because we're ambassadors. What's an ambassador? If, if you were the U.S. ambassador, <clears throat> excuse me, if you were the U.S. ambassador to name a country, Afghanistan, if you are the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, then that means you are sent to another country to represent your country to that country, in that country, right? What does that mean if we're ambassadors for Christ? It means you were sent by your king to represent him and his message. You are his delegation into the place that you live that is not your home. Remember the tent verbiage? Paul's saying these tents, these temporal homes, He brings this on into being ambassadors. We're in a place that's not our home. And if you live your life as if this is all that matters, best life now, make sure that I do everything I can to live it up, eat, sleep, or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, then you're missing the point, missing the commission that's been given to you as an ambassador who's been sent into a world that's not your home to represent your king. And we represent him by saying, hey, my king is more loving than any love you've ever known. 
My king can give you a peace that's greater than your circumstances and the turmoil of what you're facing in your life. My king will give you more joy than you've ever experienced. And you know what? Not only that, he has invited you into citizenship in his kingdom. I'm an ambassador here to tell you that. That he has opened the door for you to come to him. He let me in and now I'm an ambassador and you can come in too. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Part of the reason that we don't take seriously the commission to be missional in our lives is because we don't see the identity that's been given to us as ambassadors for Christ. We have a responsibility if you have been given reconciliation. You have a responsibility to share the message of reconciliation, but beyond that, shouldn't we have a joy in sharing Shouldn't, we, shouldn't it be like the other good things in our lives where we're going, I, I'm sorry, I just, I got to tell somebody. I got to share. I'm going to ask you this question. Here's what I want you to think about for a moment. How would Jesus live if he had your life? If you're his ambassador representing him, how would Jesus live if he had your life? If Jesus was a teacher, if he owned a water business, if Jesus was an aviation mechanic, if Jesus was in construction, if Jesus was a teacher, if Jesus was in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm butchering it, if Jesus was a nurse anesthetist, if Jesus was in the Coast Guard, if Jesus had your life, how would he do your life? If Jesus was parent to your children, how would he parent your children? If Jesus was married to your spouse, and I'm not trying to make theology out of that, don't get weird. If Jesus was married to your spouse, how would he love and serve your spouse? If Jesus had your family, how would he interact with your family? If Jesus had your job, how would he do your job? If Jesus had your coworkers, how would he work and relate to your coworkers? If Jesus was in your life, how would Jesus live your life? And then don't we want to, after considering that, go, that's what I should be doing. As we consider that, isn't that where we should go, that's what my life should look like? And that's a really easy way, a really easy way to think, okay, if Jesus was in my life, would he be doing this thing right now? No, I probably shouldn't do it. If Jesus was in my life and this person was road raging on me, shooting the bird at me, how would Jesus interact with, with that exchange? If Jesus were among my coworkers, how would he navigate that? See, living on mission means living on purpose. I had a meeting with Trace. Many of you have probably met Trace by now. He's on our team. And 
Um, he's been moving a lot of our missions initiatives forward. And I had a meeting with him this last week, and he was talking about our, he was showing me this new document of our missions policies, and it's incredible. He's done an, a great job working really hard on it. And he was educating me a lot on different verbiages and terms and definitions around missions. And, and he told me about the term, um, you know, a closed nation. That means that's a nation where the gospel is not welcome. You can't go to that nation saying, hey, I'm a missionary. I'm here to tell people about Jesus. They're like, hey, you're not welcome. It's a closed nation. But he told me there's another definition, another title for that same type of nation. They start calling them creative access nations. Why? Because they have to figure out creative ways to access those nations to bring the gospel in because they can't just say, I'm here to tell people about Jesus. You can't just stand on the corner and preach because you'll be arrested or persecuted or even killed. And so they have to have creative access. And it started making me think, man, if we're ambassadors for Christ and we want to live on mission in our lives, what if God put you in your family to creatively access the life of your family members to at the right time share the gospel? What if God gave you your skills and your education or your life experience to get you to your job, your place of work, so that you could be a point of creative access to bring in the gospel where otherwise there might be walls? Are they, are they legal walls or government walls saying, no, you can't talk about Jesus? No, but maybe it's other walls of people having hardness of heart against God or, or people thinking Christianity stupid or whatever the different walls might be. Maybe God put you in these people's lives as a point of creative access that you might love them well, serve them well, help them out, be a good neighbor, clear their sidewalk, not just yours, do their driveway too if you've got time, figure out what you can do to show these people that you care about them, that you love them, so that at the right time, may the Lord give you an opportunity to plant seeds of the word of God into their hearts that might grow into harvest. Now, here's what we do. We go, but what if they reject me? What if they think I'm that weirdo? We've already acknowledged we're all weird. What if they reject me? What if they decline? What if they start telling other people bad things about me? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my friendship with that person? What if, what if, what if? Those are things to consider. But let's change the glasses to what if they believed? What if God used me to bring my neighbor to Christ? What if God used my love to open the door to the gospel where the door was closed before? What if God used me to share hope to the people I'm working with? What if God used me to show the people in this sports group that I'm in a different way of life? What if God actually used me to bring someone to Jesus? Or what if can either be motivated by fear or by faith. We should pray and ask God to give us faith to change our what if so that we would be compelled and controlled by love to share the message of reconciliation with the people who God has brought into our life. Jesus, I pray today, Lord, that you would not let us be content or comfortable living our lives for ourselves. That is beneath your purpose of why you created us. Lord, I ask today by your Holy Spirit that you would give us the courage to take risks, to put our neck out, 
to put ourselves out there and be willing to be rejected, to be willing to be mocked or ridiculed, to be willing to be fired, to be willing to be ex, uh, excommunicated or ostracized, to be willing to lose in hopes that you might grant salvation in the lives of those whom we're sharing with. Lord, I ask that you give us creative ways, give us doors of opportunity, help us be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, help us recognize when you've given us an opportunity to share. Let us seize the moment. Let us act. Let us live in a way where we don't live for ourselves, but for you, because you paid for our lives with your blood on the cross. Lord, I ask that you would use us for your name's sake, the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand with us as we respond with singing this morning? to the